Welcome to the What to Watch podcast. I am host Ricky Camilleri. I also host the video show that you watch with your eyes on AOL.com backslash what to watch. Uh, if you're listening to this and, and, and you like the sound of this voice and you're wondering what it looks like and how much fun it would be to, to look at this voice talk, go to AOL.com backslash what to watch. There are sketches, interviews, um, episodes of the show that feature all of those things in our podcast which you're listening to these are interviews that we've done for the show that we are starting to put together into the podcast um in this episode we have three separate interviews from the south by southwest film festival they were recorded back in uh, march 2016 when the south by southwest film festival was happening the first interview we have is mark duplass and alex lehman for the documentary asbergers are us that is um Alex's documentary uh, about a comedy troupe made up of uh, kids with as- or guys with Asperger's and uh, Mark Duplass, titan himself of indie film, helped produce this documentary and put it together. Um, the second interview you're going to hear is Ethan Hawke and Robert Boudreau for their film Born to be Blue, which is the story of uh, Chet Baker, uh, a, story, a slice of Chet Baker's life. And then the third interview you're going to hear is uh, Burt Reynolds himself with director Jesse Moss talking about the documentary The Bandit, which was the story of Burt and Burt Reynolds and uh, his longtime stuntman and director Hal Needham's uh, friendship, their very close friendship. But first, we're going to take it to Mark Duplass, Alex Lehman, and me discussing uh, their film Asperger's R Us at the South by Southwest Film Festival. Take it away, me. Hey guys, welcome to What to Watch at the South by Southwest Film Festival. I'm joined right now by Mark Duplass and filmmaker Alex Lehman uh, of Asperger's R Us. Congratulations, Alex, on a really moving documentary. Thank you so much. Uh, before we even talk about the documentary, I'm curious how it got to Mark, because I did a little IMDb and I saw that you're a camera operator on The League. I'm wondering if that's how you guys met, if that's how you it's brought It's not. The- it's not how we met. I don't allow the camera operators to speak to me while I'm on the set of the league because I'm in character. And then the same thing with our show too. You won't talk to. I any won't of our... speak to anyone. I'm not speaking to you. I'm actually looking right past <laughs> you right now. I will not look at your face. Um, I was Mr. Duplass, may I answer? <laughs> yes, you may. Go ahead. Go ahead. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, we did. We did meet on the league, uh, and we worked together for a bunch of years. And I started developing this this doc uh, a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, kind of check in with Mark because I love his movies and I was like, hey man, I, I'm doing this thing and uh, as it got a little closer, I finally slid it over. I was like, what do you think? You know? And uh, How much had you shot and it. put uh, together by that time when you sort of slid it over? Well, it was, uh, I thought it was done for a second and then, uh, and then Mark, you know, point, pointed out some stuff. It's like, if you had a chance to open it up again, would you want to do anything to it? And I said, yes, please. Because <laughs> I'd done a few, you know, a mm-hmm. couple test screenings and I was like, I don't, you know, I don't know how, but I want to make it better. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was fun. We kind of brought in, like, our, like, it was like a heist movie where I was like, let me bring in my crackpot team. <laughs> I've got this guy and this guy and this guy. And, and so they we each all, had different things that they did. Yeah, and they, like, exactly. came in and freeze-framed. And, and we freeze-framed. Like... And then there was a montage. We played some late 80s heart songs. <laughs> um, and, um, and it was great. We kind of spent a month together kind of, trying to see what we could do to kind of just bring that movie to the place where it could be, you know, go from a fun festival discovery to like a, you know, a really big movie. Cause I mean, as soon as I saw this movie, I was like, 
Okay, this is a specific niche film about, yes, a troupe who has Asperger's. Um, a comedy troupe. comedy troupe trying to make their way in the world, but I was, there was something in it that just hooked me, and I was like, there's a huge beating heart here about trying to uh, be yourself, mm -hmm. um, trying to be the best that you can be as you are. Should I try to transcend my troubles as they are? Should I try to just accept them and be me? I deal with that stuff a lot. And, um, and so yeah, we all kind of circled up the movie and, and then now we're here. So how did you come about the, this troupe, Asperger's R Us, which is a, a comedy troupe made up of uh, four young men who are on the spectrum. And I think they say, even they say, the only comedy troupe in the, in, in the world made up of uh, yes. people on the spectrum. The, at least the first openly the first. all autistic <laughs> comedy troupe, as they put it. They're covering their bases. There are, there are thousands of closeted comedy <laughs> troops, uh, closeted Asperger comedy troops, yeah. Yeah, at the end of the interview, I'll, uh, I can release the, uh, all the celebrities who actually are closet autistic. <laughs> yes, yes. That's, yeah, that's appropriate. That is appropriate. Um, yeah, so I, I, you know, to be honest, I didn't know that much about uh, autism or Asperger's, and I was just kind of searching, I was, I was trying to write the script and, and, and write an Asperger's character. Just came across this article about these Asperger's comedians. It's like, that totally turns every preconception I had upside down. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I, I kind of figured out pretty quickly that, A, I needed to learn a lot more about them, and B, it's like, this is a movie I can make right now. Like, this, like forget my script, I just threw it out, and, uh, and I called the guys up, and I, and I said, please, let me come out and film you, and wow. let's, let's just see, you know. So I didn't know what the story was going to be at that point, um, and I barely even got to talk to them on the phone before I was out there. How, how, how long were you filming until you started to realize that the story, well, I will say the story for me, you said this a little bit, is about how sort of performance can shape and mold your personality and make you comfortable with, with, with who you actually are. I thought I was making a short doc, and I was going out there for one week and then maybe coming back three months later for one more shoot. And the very last day, the day I was actually getting on a plane, um, knew Michael, uh, and I had a little one-on-one -on -one, uh, shooting session, and he opened up about some stuff, and I... You know, all of a sudden I saw uh, how much of a story there was. So I, I literally, I got home, uh, my wife asked me how the shoot was, I said, I think I gotta go back in two weeks, and the rest of the summer I just kinda kept flying out, because the, the rest of the story kind of unraveled. Uh, New Michael is possibly the coolest name anybody has ever given themselves. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, as he says in the doc, it's a very cool name, but it's also uh, a joke. Yeah, um, and which also makes it cool because <laughs> he takes it, cool. it seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, what well, also makes it best is he says that and he doesn't smile no. and he lets it sit <laughs> quietly with you for about five seconds and he lets you say the next thing and that's what makes him the coolest motherfucker on the planet. <laughs> yeah, he's an assassin for sure. He just yeah. he just leaves you hanging until you can't take it anymore. Um, and New Michael, it's the great end of the, to the movie as well because uh, his father's name is Michael. Mm -hmm. And his name is Michael, but his parents always called him Aaron, which was his middle name. And uh, he, he decided to change his name, uh, I think in middle school, to New Michael. And it's this, this great story. I mean, you know, I don't want to ruin the film for everybody, but it's, it's just basically just a, a little, a little uh, opening into this, this kid trying to express some appreciation for his dad. And at the same time, if you ask him about it, he doesn't want to. You know, admit that it's there. So there, it's this great discovery. Like, just most, like most sons and fathers, I, I think it has doesn't oh, necessarily sure. have to do with Asperger's at all. It's, most sons and fathers don't want to admit that anything's there. And I think that's probably if, the most important thing about this film is uh, it's not a movie about Asperger's or autism. Mm -hmm. First and foremost, it's it's a coming of age story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, it's something that I was able to relate to, 
and um, and kind of you know make my way through the film there. So we hit on Asperger's and autism, but yeah, it's it's about four buddies um, trying to you know about to split off and kind of do their thing in the world, and it's about a father and son. So you know, I expect we're gonna make Star Wars kind of money with this <laughs> movie because you know we we hit that father son thing just like them. There's <laughs> yeah. a shit ton of robots in it as well. <laughs> so where was, what, what, what sort of position or where was the film at when you brought it to Mark and what kind of work did you guys do? What did you flesh out? The most important thing we did was um, work out the opening. Yeah. So I sent it to Mark and, and, and he said, uh, you know, what, what would you do differently? I said, I, I beg people to get through the first 15 minutes because then I think it kind of, you know, resonates for everyone. And um, so we kind of teamed up and figured out how to that, make it yeah, a that was opening. really it. I think it was like, you know, just to be perfectly honest, it was the the heart of the movie and the greatness of the movie was all there. It was just stuff that Jay and I have learned over the last 10 to 12 years about, um, I call it the funnel, you know, which is like when you're opening a movie for people, you want to invite as many people as possible in with the widest margin of acceptance to them and then slowly but surely take them down the funnel into the very specific nature of what the movie is by the end. And when I watched the movie, it was a little thin, and then we just decided to kind of open it up for everybody and let everybody into it, invite them in. And then we worked a little bit on the father-son storyline and crafting it, but honestly, like, my role in this movie was, holy shit, these guys are incredible. What you've made here is incredible. Let's take it that last 10% of the way, and then let me help you like get it out into the world. Mm -hmm. How often is that the, the case for you, Mark? You have two, two films at the festival mm -hmm. this year, right, as opposed to last year's six, I think, <laughs> you, you had here? It was 117. <laughs> yeah. No one would be surprised if that was the actual number. Like, that sounds like the Duplass Brothers, yeah. yeah. Uh, so you and Jay have two movies this mm -hmm. year, and is your role, when you pick up a movie that you want to bring to a festival that you guys want to work on, is it about stories that you like that you feel like you can help shape, or would you guys ever take on a movie that you feel like, that's done, we can just help release it, or yeah, we've never Yeah, we've never come on to like, we've never adopted a movie that's a fully formed movie, you know, and taken it out. Um, I would say Asperger's or Us was one of the movies that was closest to its completion level when we came on board. Movie Rainbow Time we have here was something that we were with at the beginning with our friend Linus Phillips, who just was like, guys, I really want to make this movie. Can you please give me some money <laughs> um, and help me make this? And we said, yeah. Um, uh, so it's, it's really all different, you know. Um, you know, I mean, Alex and I have known each other for a while, and, and we're building another movie together where it'll be kind of the two of us from the front doing it. So it, it, we don't really have an ethos of how or when we should do it. Our big thing is, um, is really survivor's guilt is really what it comes down to. It's like when I, when I saw this movie and I saw Alex, I was like, this is a great movie, and he's this really talented guy, and like, without the right placement, there's a chance this movie is not gonna get mm -hmm. eyeballs. So I'm just gonna do whatever I can with whatever connections I've made in the last 10 years to like get behind this movie and get it out. I'm curious about those connections. You know, Puffy Chair started at Netflix. It was one of the first Netflix acquisitions, yeah. right? And we're at a point right now where Netflix and Amazon are paying $10 million, $16 million yeah. for Oscar bait movies. Actually, I wouldn't call them Oscar bait yet. I would never mm. want to say that about Manchester by the Sea. It's amazing. Um, but we're in a different league with Netflix. Yeah. Major, major A-list stars want to work with Netflix. Are you finding it as, as easy or Netflix as interested in the sort of the, the smaller scale movies that you've been sort of bringing to them for, for a while? Yeah, you know, we have a, a specific deal with Netflix we're going to be making between, you know, 
five to ten movies uh, with these guys over the next few years. It's like um, you and Adam Sandler have that deal. That's exactly right. It's like, it's like we are the two people that have deals. Um, and that kind of goes back to, to your point. Yeah, that's sorry. actually there's some sense to that, which is like um, his movies make tons of monies internationally and they do really well for them. And and our movies are are really small and they're niche and. The arrival of Netflix and Amazon into the space has been so great for independent film in a lot of ways. Look, it's complex. Sure. They are, to a certain degree, Starbucks moving into the mom and pop shops who have been there forever buying movies, uh, these small movies, and, and they're paying big prices. But you know, at the end of the day, um, it's just so important to me to have someone like, you know, who has lots of money to subsidize independent film is really what they're doing. And Netflix and Amazon will be the first ones to tell you they're overpaying for these movies, <laughs> and that's but they can, and that's how they get themselves out needs. into the yes, yeah. All those wonderful razor sales on Amazon <laughs> are taking care of our independent film community, <laughs> and I'm super excited about it. I just bought an electric razor from Amazon not that long hey, ago. Hey, <laughs> you're a patron of the arts, my friend. God bless you. I'm curious when we talk about Netflix and Adam Sandler and and, um, and and your movies right here in terms of the different kinds of budgets and the different sort of audiences, it reminds me of something that you were saying at South by Southwest a couple of years ago, which is that in Hollywood right now there are these movies and there are these movies, and it's really hard to be in between. Do you yeah. find that Netflix and Amazon, because of the prices that they're paying, could start sort of right now while they have these two here, they might start moving them closer together because of how uh, their business practices are. Yeah, if we were if this year were a political election and Netflix and Amazon were running, they would be getting up there and saying, for far too long we have had a bifurcated upper class and lower class. We need a healthy middle class here and we are ready to make a sustainable middle class. Yeah, when they come and they pay 10 to 15 million dollars for two specialty movies at Sundance, it totally makes a mark. I don't know that that's going to be sustainable. Everything is changing so quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yes, there's a glimmer of hope there in the space that was previously occupied by Fox Searchlight and by Focus, you know, saying, yeah, let's make a $10 million specialty movie that will make its money back. Cyrus, which I made in 2008, is a perfect example of a movie that I think can't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, we made that movie for $6 million. It went out. It made, like, between 15 to $20 million through theatrical and all its ancillaries. Totally healthy. I really believe if you release Cyrus today, with the same amount of marketing dollars that we did, it makes about $200,000 in the movie theaters. Really? 100%. It's just the nature of what's happening. We've got a glut of content out there. You know, I'm guilty of it too. Like, wh am I, why am I gonna go see that in the movie theater when I have countless wonderful things to watch on my 50-inch television at home mm -hmm. where the beer is cheaper <laughs> and I control the music? Like, it's happening, for sure. At least more niche films are getting made this way, though. Yes. The, the and I would say the lower to bottom uh, end of things is as healthy as it can possibly be because of technology, and then because guys like me and Alex can say, you know what, there is a healthy buyer's marketplace now. If we go out and we put sweat equity into it and we make things cheap like we used to make them in college, and we're willing to like hang some lights ourselves and do that, we'll have something that can make a huge profit for us and our crew, and then we can make it exactly how we want to creatively. And this is what I've been dreaming about. And so this is, people do complain a lot about the state of independent film, and I think that middle class is in trouble, but the lower class is awesome. Right Thriving. Now. That's where I'm living, yeah.
Well, going back to Asperger's. I'm in a barrio, man. I'm street. <laughs> going back to Asperger's RS before I let you go. Uh, last question: Have uh, what do the what do the kids think of the movie? What do the guys think of the movie? Um, the first time they watched it, they were pretty terrified, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they love it now. Um, mm -hmm. I think they 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 want their entire show to be seen. So I'm hoping that this is actually going to help their uh, their booking career, so that they can actually play bigger shows. We we can you know, the movie. Uh, uh, Come, you know, the, the, the eclipse of the movie, or what's the word I'm looking for here? Climax? Thank you. The climax of the movie is, uh, is their big show, their big farewell show. And, um, and razor testing facility is very, very funny. Razor testing, yeah. yeah. That's a, that's that's, a one-liner, too. Oh, it's a that's great a, joke. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, so they've got an entire show, and I had to you know, trim it down to eight minutes. So I think they would love for people to see more of their comedy. Mm -hmm. um, DVD extras. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. um, well, congratulations on the film and screening at Thank South you. by Southwest, Alex. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for being here. Alex, thanks, thanks for being here as well. Thank you so much. All right, thanks, guys. All right. Uh, that was Mark Duplass and Alex Lehman discussing Asperger's R.S. The next interview is Ethan Hawke and Robert Boudreau discuss discussing the movie Born to be Blue. Uh, it is the story of a slice of Chet Baker's life. It's a really beautiful film, uh, incredibly well made and, and, and photographed. And Ethan Hawke, I think, delivers a very different kind of performance uh, than we've come to expect from, from Ethan Hawke. Uh, really... Um, Really great actor doing some uh, dynamic work in this movie with a, with a with a good director. This is uh, let's take it to them talking about Born to Be Blue. Hi guys, I'm joined right now by Ethan Hawke and Robert Boudreau, the team behind Born to Be Blue. Our last interview at the South by Southwest Film Festival. Well, guys, thanks so much for being the last for yeah, joining me. Our pleasure to us. close up shop. <laughs> uh, congratulations uh, on the film. There are so many things that I can say about it. I'll say that it's it's a refreshing to watch a biopic be done like this and not necessarily be your typical biopic. It's beautiful to look at and incredibly well acted. So congratulations on that. It's no Thank small you. feat. Uh, I'm curious, Robert, you know, when you tell a story like this and you, you don't just set up like a very specific time in, in Chet Baker's life, what you're also doing is doing a very self-reflexive approach to doing a biopic and you sort of start that in the beginning by somebody else mm. telling his story and then Chet's telling versions of his stories and yeah. other people have an idea of him. How much of that are you, do you find in the editing room? I'm just curious because mm. there's so many small blips that give more that I think you would expect when you start writing something like that. You feel like you would have to explain more. Well, when I first started writing the film, this idea of the film within a film uh, was always the core. Um, that was like the main kernel that set me off writing the whole project. So that was always there. And the framing of the film kind of over a year or two in the 60s was always there. But within that, we tried to kind of remain organic in the edit. And so some of the use of, of black and white uh, changed a bit. We ended up using it throughout the film. And, you know, we, we did some of the usual tricks by reshuffling some scenes. And, mm -hmm. you know, we started the process <clears throat> saying that we'd, we'd remain kind of organic and true to jazz, and, and I think that carried right through to the edit, into the last days of the edit. And Ethan was, you know, even uh, in touch with me a lot during the edit, and, and we were I was really trying to keep that spirit right to the last minute, like all the way throughout, as much as possible. Now, Ethan, this is a, a sort of long gestating character for you. You had a, a project that fell through with Richard Linklater many mm -hmm. years ago about Chet Baker. What is it about Baker that sort of drew you to him for so long, or made you want to play him for know, so long? I, I think in a lot of ways, um, Chet was my introduction to jazz when I was 18 or so. 
Bruce Weber's movie Let's Get Lost came out. And that was my first touching of it. It was around the same time Round Midnight came out, around the same time Bird came out. And so I started learning about jazz through, through movies and falling in love with, with him, particularly just because he's so enigmatic and you're not sure who he is. And there's something so melancholy and sad and lonely about his music. Mm -hmm. uh, and how somebody who so seemingly has it all could be so, uh, so aloof and detached. And yeah. so, uh, it was, he's a very mysterious person. And so he's almost a mystery to himself in oh, many ways. Very much, even, I always find it fascinating that even his death, nobody's exactly sure how he died. You know, it's just every aspect of his life is so mysterious. So as an actor that becomes this huge challenge. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how could you make sense out of that guy? What does make him tick? Mm -hmm. uh, Robert, when you set, up to do, uh, set out to do a biopic, especially one about a musician who has a drug problem, how do you avoid the normal trappings of, of that story when, when you were setting? Because I could imagine trying to tell that story and feeling like, oh, well, these things are important, but shit, we've seen that before yeah. so many times in, all, in so many other biopics. Well, I think the reimagined film within a film approach uh, was a conscious effort not to do that, and I think not being judgmental about the, the, the drug use, because a lot of films just equate drugs are bad and then there's a certain rehabilitation, and I think we tried to avoid that. Mm -hmm. um, so we were quite conscious of the kind of music biopic cliches, and you also focused on, a, I mean, 90%, 98% of the movie, he's sober. He's clean. Yeah. yeah we so chose the period mm -hmm. in his life where, yeah, drugs weren't, I mean, they, they were still a major issue, but it was more like something that was haunting the film. And, and I think that, and that's why I found that, that period so interesting, I think, is because it wasn't exactly what you expected from the Chet Baker story. That's, I didn't know that about Chet Baker when I first listened to him, and I was fascinated when I found that out, and I hoped others would be as well. It's a really interesting approach to the drugs and a biopic story because even he is very aloof from it. He's rarely walking around being like, oh, I gotta get sober, man, I gotta figure this out. He's like, I'm kinda sober. Yeah. Maybe it'll work out. And he says <laughs> drinking a beer and yeah. smoking a joint. That doesn't count. That doesn't count. <laughs> he was in his mind, you know, a little methadone, a little, you know, whiskey and a joint. That's sober. You know? um, there, as I said before, not just the film within the film, but I feel like with this character, there are so many stories. The story that other people are trying to tell about him, the stories that he tells about himself, and the mm -hmm. one that he might actually be living. Is that something that you are juggling in your head as the actor, or are you just kind of... Well, I find that really interesting, what you're saying, because that's part of it when you're telling the story about a legend, is he's kind of caught in seeing himself in the third person too. And Miles um, Davis sees him a certain way. And yeah, and, and, and so he's creating this narrative in, in his head that's ultimately really destructive. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's totally counter to actually being present, living, yeah. worrying constantly about how you're coming off and seeing yourself as a legend. How do you play the role of Chet Baker? That's what I found so interesting about having the challenge of I was playing Chet Baker, playing himself in a movie with a guy who's very worried about how he comes across. <laughs> you, you know, and, and so... There's so many levels of performance happening, which I think just gets at the whole notion of how dishonest a lot of that is, storytelling. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. The narratives we make up in our mind, some of them are true and some of them aren't. Mm -hmm. um, with Chet Baker, he was number one, right, in all the jazz polls at a certain time when Miles Davis was around and, and, and a number of other uh, prominent black jazz musicians were, were, were kicking around. <laughs> Do you feel like Chet Baker might have been the original Macklemore? <laughs> well, 
you know, there's so many, you know, Elvis. Yeah, that's true. Elvis, Eminem. I mean, there's a long history of white people appropriating black culture and black music and riding it to success in the white community was something that really wasn't theirs. But I don't blame the artists. Yeah. You know, I don't blame Elvis for that. I don't blame Chet Baker for that. I don't blame Eminem. These guys are all really talented and they love black music. Yeah. They sincerely, their love is sincere. They're, Chet Baker's not trying to make money by doing it. He just loves it, mm -hmm. you know? Elvis sang that music from his heart, you know, and from his soul the same way Chuck Berry did. Did he originate it? No. And did he did he make more money off of it because he was white? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but that's the culture's problem. Yeah, Do you know what I mean? I, I see that as a I mean, cultural in, problem. In many ways, Elvis or, or, or Chet Baker might be trying to bring that music to There's the different white music. community. Was Chet Baker the best trumpeter when he downbeat? Was he better than Louis Armstrong? Was he better than Dizzy Gillespie? Was he better than Miles Davis? Was he better than Cliff Brown? No. Yeah. No. He was the white guy who was doing it really well. And that's... That's our culture, not not Chet. Mm -hmm. But he knew that too, and that's he what's interesting that. is that he felt guilty because he wanted their respect, and he knew he was number one, but he didn't really feel like he was number one. So to me, that I mean, he's not just a cocky white guy who thinks he's the best. He knows he's actually he, not. He, he knew he didn't start. So Bebop. that's interesting. <laughs> you know, I mean, he, he's aware that he's, you know, I mean, but yet he knows he's also good enough to play with Charlie Parker. Mm -hmm. You know, he knows he's good enough to be in the room. Mm -hmm. You know, he can do this, but. It puts the individual at a really, I mean, I find it really fascinating right now to have our movie coming out at the same time that Don Cheadle's doing the Miles Davis movie, because what I love about it is that Miles is such a huge presence in Chet's movie, and Chet doesn't make an appearance in Miles' movie, yeah. because that's just the truth, you know? Yeah. In, in, the, in the story of Chet's life, Miles is huge. In the story of Miles' life, Chet who? Yeah. You know, I mean, just another <laughs> white dude stealing from me. You know? uh, and, and, it, and it goes along with, uh, with, with that movie as well. It's a different kind of biopic. It's a sort of slice of life biopic where it's taking one small period of this person's life and trying to tell the sort of spirit. It's a much smarter way to go about it. Well, it's it, the spirit of their story rather than their whole story. That's what Robert story. and I are trying to do too. Yeah. Did you, find it any, did you find difficulty with that? Or do you, think the, do you guys think the sort of classic biopic might be done that we're sort of done with that narrative? I mean, I think that version can still work if it's a TV movie or if it's a like a big, sometimes bigger studio music biopics can work because they have big budgets. They they're able to kind of tell that story in a way that I mean, Ray is, is very broad. satisfying and it does it in that big, grand way. And mm -hmm. um, we love Capote, we love Raging Bull. You know, yeah. um, very. You just take a simple moment, and try to do it really, really well. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't think it's ever, nobody's ever done. If, if it's done well, you can do it. But mm -hmm. in general, I find this attack much more interesting. Well, guys, uh, I'm being given the rap sign. But okay. Well, <laughs> it's fun talking to you. Yeah, it's really nice talking to you. Congratulations again uh, on the movie. And it's coming out pretty soon, right? Yeah. March 25th. March 25th. Born to be blue. All right, guys, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Yeah. Our last interview on this podcast today, coming from the South by Southwest Film Festival, like the others, is director Jesse Moss discussing his film The Bandit with none other than Burt Reynolds. Uh, I interview a lot of people. I get to sit, I, I have the privilege, I guess you could call it, from sitting across from a, a lot of celebrities, but there was something really spectacular about Burt Reynolds entering a, a room. The man is a a little bit older these days and he, he's on a cane and he needs a little help, but he is still as charismatic 
as uh, he once was before. And uh, when he gets talking on a talk show, as the documentary said, he was the king of talk shows. And you can tell why. He's candid. He's funny. He likes to joke around. It's very clear that uh, he loves... He, he, he loves the format of a, of a, of a good talk show. And uh, Jesse Moss put together a great documentary about uh, Bert and Bert's relationship with uh, his best friend Hal Needham, uh, who was a stuntman and then the director of Smokey and the Bandit and a number of uh, Bert Reynolds films in the 70s and 80s. Uh, just a, a documentary about two good old boys being buddies. Bert uh, talked to us about Hal, uh, about making the documentary, and a little bit about his... Uh, provocative uh, photo shoot for Cosmopolitan where he posed naked and how that kind of killed his career a little bit and whether or not he was uh, inebriated for that photo shoot. So I'll let him do the rest of the talking. Let's hear Burt Reynolds and Jesse Moss discussing The Bandit. Guys, we're continuing our coverage of the South by Southwest Film Festival and right now, this is incredibly special. We have the folks behind the movie, The Bandit. We have director Jesse Moss and the legend himself, Mr. Burt Reynolds. Mr. Reynolds, thank you so much for being here. It's an no, honor to you have you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I think it's, you know, you are, you are very well known. Everybody who loves movies loves Burt Reynolds. And I think what's interesting is that this movie helps people to know that there was another man behind Burt Reynolds as well, that there's somebody else to love along with Burt Reynolds. And that's your, you know, one of your best friends, Hal Needham. Yes. Can you talk about uh, how you felt when you found out someone was going to make a documentary about you and Hal? <laughs> well, I was, uh, I was really happy that it was Bert and Hal, and not just Bert, or not just Hal. <laughs> <laughs> I was happy that it was the two of us together because I, I thought he was, and he was, the best stuntman that ever lived, and he was the, and because of that, he was the highest paid mm -hmm. in the world. Do you feel like uh, you have you have a legacy, but it's important to sort of preserve the legacy uh, of Hal as well? Yes. And uh, are you happy that you get to sort of participate in, in helping to preserve that so a new generation of fans can, can, under, can find him? I think he'd be happy about that. That's the main thing. I think, uh, you know, knowing Hal, he, he was uh, not only amazing and so many ways, but he had this, he had a tremendous ego, which I quite loved. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think you're known a little bit for having a, a quite a tremendous ego as well. Did the two of you butt heads at all together, or did you never, sort of never. go along like peas and carrots? No, the... never. It was uh, perfect because you had these two guys that uh, thought that the other one was great, and uh, and at the same time we were happy just to have a mirror there in the interview. And the two of you made uh, each other each other better. You know, your your acting and your comic timing made his stunts and his directorial work on Smoking the Bandit and, and, and other movies uh, it elevated those even more. Yeah, we worked well together, and we worked well together when he was just a stuntman. And when I say just a stuntman, he was more than that. Every stuntman in the business, when they did something for Hal, when he was directing, they did it twice as high as they should have done it and more dangerous than it maybe should have been because they wanted it to be uh, the best. They were doing it for the best and they wanted it to be the best. Mm -hmm. 
And Jesse, uh, you're the director of this film. Uh, what was it like sort of discovering more about Hal Needham as you, as you went along doing this? And how much did you realize halfway doing it that this had to be a movie about Bert and Hal and not just one or the other? I, I think r right away we realized that this was the, the story behind Smoking and the Band. It was this relationship, um, this buddy movie about a buddy movie um, was how we initially um, conceived it. And But for me, the discovery was that they had been friends for so long and that they went back to the late 1950s and uh, television. Um, and that it, it wasn't just that moment. It was a lifelong professional and personal relationship. Um, and that Smokey was the, the crucible of that relationship. The test, they risked a lot to make the film. They risked their relationship, um, their own careers. Um, so they had a lot at stake. That was that struck me as an incredible story. And Hal Needham was a discovery for me. Of course, I knew something about Bert and his career and his work, but but Hal Needham, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And now Bert, you know, a lot of a lot of friends come and go, and a lot of loves come and go in a profession, in a life. What do you think it was about about Hal uh, that kept him so close to you? I'm sure some people fall off and some people stick around, but Hal really stuck around with you. He was. Uh... He was an amazing man. There'll never be another one like him, I don't think. Not in the stunt business. And when we had Stuntman, when Hal was directing the film, when we had Stuntman uh, on the picture doing a stunt, and as I said before, they, because Hal was there behind the camera, they had to do it a little better and a little harder, a little faster, a little higher, a little harder than they'd done it before because it was for Needham. Now, uh, in the movie, you talk a little bit about uh, how possibly wanting to be the movie star as well. I'm wondering, was there ever any competition between you and Hal as friends? Was there a healthy competition between the two of you? Never, really? never. Not only that, he, uh, his wife and he had an argument. She kicked him out, and he came and asked if he could stay at my house for a couple of nights, and I said, sure. And five years later, he hadn't left, so I assumed that he was going to stay for a while. Uh, and we never, ever had a crossword that entire time. Five years living with you? Yes. That's unbelievable. Yes, I, I, if he'd have been a woman, I would have had such a great marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Do you look at, did you look at Hal sometimes and think, why can't you be a woman? I, I, I thought about it. I didn't want to tell him that because I was afraid he'd run. But... <laughs> I, I did think about it, yes. Yeah, do you miss him? Oh, all the time, yes. Mm -hmm. And Jesse, what, what, what brought you to this? You told me you're a closet car enthusiast. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, it was irresistible. A chance to make a documentary about um, Bert's career and tell the story of Smokey and the Bandit, which is a film that I saw when I was seven years old and, and loved then, but didn't really know the story behind it. Um, so um, it was a deep dive into the 1970s, um, two incredibly charismatic, compelling, interesting people. Um, it, 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 it was like catnip for a documentary filmmaker, and to have um, CMT supporting the film gave me the time and the, the freedom to really dive into it. Um, and, and we right away approached Bert, not really thinking that he would participate because he's Bert Reynolds, but you know, I think that you responded to the approach, um, and thank you, and, um, and that we were able to, to, make, to make it, and you gave us access to your archives, which were extraordinary, so those are in the film. Bert, I gotta ask, you know, part of the film explores the, uh, the Cosmopolitan Cup cover page or uh, in the pages in that where you pose nude and there's a couple of moments that, that discuss maybe some of your missteps 
as a, as, as a celebrity actor, I'm wondering if you look back on it, uh, how do you feel looking back on some of those instances? Do you have any regrets? Yeah, I wish I had done that. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. That, so that's the main regret? <laughs> no, I mean, it was really stupid. I don't know what I was thinking, but I, I think I was probably knowing me, I was like, you won't do that, you chicken, you know, something. And I went, well, that's all I had to hear, of course. I, I said, yeah, I will. And uh, as long as it was only, uh, you know, a certain amount of pubic hair showing, <laughs> and I was all for it, you know? <laughs> Did you have set rules when you went in? Did you, like, show me the picture? How much no, the only there? rules I had was I wanted a lot of drinks uh, before because I, I, I was a little bit, uh, you know, well, I was, let's, I have to be truthful, I was totally zonkered when we did the picture. And that stupid smile is, that's what it is. It's, you know. <laughs> well, I was, I was excited to, uh, to find the footage of your pastor, Jess Moody, being asked about that. And he, he's actually said, you know what, Bert wants to take his clothes off. You know, it's not something I would do, but he can do it. <laughs> It's true. Guys, uh, I love the film. It's so wonderful to see the sort of legacy of both Burt and Hal uh, kept alive. It's a fantastic job, Jesse and Burt. Thank you so much for, for joining us. It's been a, a pleasure to have you here. It's really an honor. Thank you very much Thank for you. having me. That does it for this episode of, uh, what, of the What to Watch podcast. Uh, you heard... Uh, just heard Burt Reynolds and Jesse Moss discuss, discussing their documentary, The Bandit. Then before that, Ethan Hawke and Robert Boudreau discussing their film, Born to be Blue. And before that, Mark Duplass and Alex Lehman discussing their documentary, Asperger's Are Us. Um, if you like what you heard and you want to watch what you've heard, go to aol.com backslash what to watch, where you can view every episode of the show in its entirety, as well as clips of the, of the show. And uh, let us know what you think. I'm not sure how. Maybe Twitter. You can tweet me at Ricky Cam and let me know what you think of the show. If uh, you say something nice, I might reply. If you don't, I'll probably reply then too because very few people are talking to me. So uh, I got time. So just get in touch. Let me know what's going on. Let me know how you how you feel about the show, and uh, also let me know how you feel uh, about this guy Frank, who puts together these shows uh, uh, with very with, with very little information. All right, guys. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>